Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an astro-scale and market-scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey, everyone. This is Chris Blackerby. I'm the astro-scale COO coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. Welcome back to Space to Grow. As you all know, we are a podcast focused on all of the factors that are going to make the space economy grow, the technology, society, finance, policy, government, commercial interaction. As always, I'm here with Charity Whedon. Hey, Charity. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It is going great. You know, there's so much going on in this world of space exploration and utilization and all of the impacts that it has on society. Uh, Development of the low Earth orbit with so many commercial constellations that are focused on communications and then all of the stuff with lunar exploration and uh, mining and space science. There's just so much happening in space that has an impact on society. And on and on and on. Yes, indeed. Um, That is all connected to the fascinating conversation we have for the listeners today. Yeah, today we're very lucky to have Dr. Timiebi Alganabajanti. She is a world-renowned space lawyer and the founder of the Arizona State University Space Governance Lab. She's also an assistant professor at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society, with a courtesy appointment at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU. You're not kidding me with the world-renowned part, by the way. <laughs> she's <laughs> been in, she's been educated all over the world. She has a Bachelor of Law from the University of Leicester, United Kingdom, Master's of Law from the Institute of Air and Space at McGill in Canada, also a PhD at McGill, and a Master's of Science at the International Space University in France. And all over the world, she was a space industry consultant in Montreal, a teaching associate at ISU in Strasbourg, France, a legal officer at the Nigerian Space Research and Development Agency, and she was previously executive director of the World Space Week Association. You've heard of World Space Week, haven't you? Well, yes. she had a key role in coordinating a global response to the United Nations 1999 declaration that World Space Week should be celebrated from October 4th to the 10th annually. Yeah, it's just an incredible resume. And in addition to all of that education and work, uh, Timmy Ebby is a fellow at the Center for International Governments and Innovation in uh, Ontario, Canada, and she focuses on environmental governance. And we're going to dive into all of those issues on the conversation of, of environmental governance. And she serves as an associate editor for the New Space Journal. And finally, she is a board member of the Space Generation Advisory Council, along with Astroscale CEO Nobu Okada. Mm, of course, she can do all those things with her free time, right? Yeah, so much free time she has, <laughs> obviously. Uh, you know, some people are just a little more accomplished than I am, Charity. I'm, I'm keeping trying, though. We keep trying to achieve <laughs> to what Timmy Evie's level is. Uh, so uh, the conversation was great. We get into a lot of interesting things and maybe even coin a new term for, um, you know, uh, space people who are out there <laughs> trying to influence society. We'll listen in you, and you'll hear it. You'll have to listen to find out. Yeah. So without any further ado, please enjoy our fascinating conversation with Dr. Timmy Evie Aganavajanti. Timmy Evie Aganavajanti, thank you so much for joining Space to Grow. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. So I want to get right into the questions, Timiebi. And uh, and one of the things is I was doing some some research for uh, for talking to you. 
looking at the future of innovation in society at ASU. It's such an awesome sounding institution. I just love the name, Future of Innovation in Society. And on the landing page for the website, it says, uh, the future is for everyone. And I want to kick off the conversation by jumping right into that concept. I mean, it sounds very clear and obvious, of course, the future is for everyone, but I know there's a lot behind that phrase. And can you explain a little bit how you interpret that and, and any kind of uh, deeper meaning behind that or how, how, you, how your work connects to that concept? It's such a great question. It sounds like you were in our staff meeting because, <laughs> I mean, that it, like you say, it's like, it seems like something clear and logical, but everyone has a different interpretation to it. And we actually all as individuals had to figure out what do you think this means and how does your work connect to it? I struggled with it a little bit because I was like, sometimes when you say something that is for everyone, then does it mean it's for no one in particular? And is, and, and is everyone an equal goal? Because obviously some things need to be prioritized over other things. But I think if you don't go that deep into it, then it's very clear that the future, everyone should be able to see themselves in the future and be able to see how they can impact the future. So for me, the future is for everyone really means all of us have a role to play in bringing out the kinds of futures we want and have to believe that it's in our uh, control and we have the ability to impact the future. Because a lot of people don't feel that they have that agency to be able to change things. And people focus on, you know, their past experiences. But but I'm here to say that using the past, because you can't think about the future without understanding the past, you know, if you have that awareness of history and awareness of your own agency, you can influence the future. And so the future is for everyone. Such a great concept, and and yeah. it's something that that obviously your your school is focused on. That's kind of one of the focus areas of the of the school at ASU. Exactly, and we have something like fifty professors in forty five different disciplines. It's wild. Everyone is tackling the future from a truly transdisciplinary perspective, and it's just it's just such an amazing place to be. And I think you know one of the things the the reasons I applied for this job was that they really thought that space is the future and they needed someone to come in that had a very diverse viewpoint to be able to bring everyone into the future. And hence, you know, my job as the professor of space and society. Tell me about the students that are involved here. I, it seems to me that the thought process and the diversity of students in caring about this issue of the future for everyone, that that is you know, elevated these days. Are students picking up on this message? So we're still working on, like, our goal is to get more students because as you can imagine, say, particularly for undergrads, it's like when you have a major, like, future of innovation, it's like, what job am I going to get with that? And so we're still trying to figure out the narratives of how, you know, that translate into jobs. But I think the students that we do have, you know, we have undergrad programs, master's programs and PhD programs, such as the human and social dimensions of technology, such as innovation and global development, are really people who are future thinking and who really care about society. And so I think for the at the grad level, it's more understandable. But where we struggle is really trying to get undergrads to see there's a future in this as a career, like thinking about societal implications of innovation, 
um, especially with all the things we've had, say, over the past few years, say, with what happened with Facebook and, you know, and, you know, all these things with, um, you know, challenges that we've had. There's really a role for sociology in technology development. Let's bring it back to outer space. And Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty outlines this concept really well. Exploration and utilization of space is open for all countries, regardless of that economic or scientific development. The goal is space for all, and, and are we really achieving that? Oh my goodness, my whole PhD thesis was all about Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty. So you, wow. don't, even wanna, you don't even want to get me started on that. because No, we do want to get you started on that. Because, That's exactly yeah, what Yeah, because I wrote hundreds of pages about that. And people, it's like when you don't study law, you're like, how can you write a whole thesis about a few lines <laughs> on a treaty? But it really was important because I was really questioning, because I came at space from a developing country standpoint, I was really questioning what does it mean that space is for the benefit and interest of all countries? Like, is that really true? And do people interpret that in a way that everyone benefits? And I think we've seen over time that people... The, the, that treaty has been interpreted differently by different actors. And at some point, some of the developing countries actually thought that they weren't really benefiting from space because I guess they didn't really understand the benefits of space. And we're still working hard to explain to everyone that space is relevant to your everyday life. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to communicate to people that space actually does benefit them, you know, understanding space applications. And I think all the work around space for sustainable development goals has been helpful to to show more people why space is relevant. But I think at the same time, we always have to think if we're keeping in line with Article 1, that basically people need to be carried along. And so this whole race mentality and race for resources and all that is not the mentality that we want to take with us moving forward, especially as we scale in space and more and more activity is going to be coming online. Yeah. And it's, um, so one of the things I was thinking to ask you was you, you kind of started answering and, uh, Prior to us recording, actually, we were talking about the importance of messaging and, uh, and, and getting this word out there. And we always hear, us in the space community, why should we be investing in space? There's so many societal problems here on Earth. And we hear that question all the time. And I don't want to ask that question. What I want to ask is, what's it going to take for people to stop asking that question? How can we convince the general public about the importance? And you touched on it a little bit just now. And as I said, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you see part of your role as, uh, as, as being a messenger and, and talking about this. So, you know, we, we keep talking about it, but the question keeps coming up. So what do you think it's going to take to get to the point where people, general public, fully understands that, hey, space is impacting me on a daily basis? So there's a group called, I think, Cold Space Technologies or something like that. They have a podcast and they have, they do consulting and their mantra is make space boring. And that doesn't sound very exciting at all. But I think the message behind that is that the exceptionalism in space only benefits a few people. So there are people who are really like, pure space geeks and they love space and they love the fact that it's cliquey and that it's a club. But really, we've got to get rid of that exceptionalism. And the only way to really do that is to start focusing on 
what are the less glamorous things about space that are actually the thing that people need to think about? So right now, when people do think of space, they think of the moonshot ideas, you know, going into deep space and living on Mars and things like that, which are really inspirational and interesting. But that's not what is going to get you know, the majority of people thinking about space, that's going to be the exceptional people that are thinking of those kind of goals. And I really had to think about this a lot coming from a developing country, because it was like, you know, if you're if if, if you're in a developing country, and you start telling people about going to Mars, they're like, how's that going to feed my family? And so the more boring day to day things about you know, how space is used to monitor fisheries and, and you know, to help, you know, with, say, GPS with time stamping and all these things. The more people know about those day-to-day stuff, yeah, it's not exciting, but then they're going to realize that space is actually getting to be the point where it's critical infrastructure. Critical infrastructure, that's a key word these days. Um, I'd like to, to go back a little bit and understand more about you Timmy, you are clearly driven to find ways that innovation and space can be used for the benefit of all. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your background and what brought you to this intersection of innovation, space, the law, and societal benefit. Yeah, so I had I had quite an interesting story because I was born and raised in the UK, but when I graduated from law school in the UK, I decided that I wanted to discover my roots, and so I went to law school in Nigeria. And when you graduate from university in Nigeria, you have to do a year's service for the country. And I was posted as one of the first hires in the Legal Affairs and International Corporation Department of the Nigerian Space Agency. Wow. And I knew, no- I knew nothing about space. You know, I got there and I was like, every time I told people I work for the space agency, people would be like, we don't even have electricity. People are starving and you're busy thinking about going to the moon. And that's when I realized, okay, I'm going to have to go study this topic because I see there's clearly something here because when you talk about it, like it riles people, you know, it gets uh, gets emotion out of people when you start talking about space. And so I went to the International Space University and that blew my mind because I was like one of the only lawyers there and they were all scientists and engineers, my first time of working with these kinds of people. And I really saw that there's, you know, they really valued my perspective. And so it was really, really interesting being in that transdisciplinary environment. From there, I went back into law working um, at the uh, as a lawyer in Nigeria. And then I went to go do my master's and PhD at McGill, studying Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty, what does space mean from a developing country perspective? And then I started getting scared because I was like, how am I going to get a job? Like, who's going to hire? <laughs> who's going to hire an African space lawyer? I mean, <laughs> I was really scared. So I did a postdoc at the Center for International Governance Innovation. You know, they did nothing about space. And I was focused on climate, on climate change. And what was really interesting was I had to learn how to make all the stuff that I've done relevant to these people. So that's when I started focusing on space applications and saying, hey, we use space and satellites for climate change, for GHG monitoring, greenhouse gas monitoring, etc. And I had to learn to communicate to a non-space audience. And I think that's the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I think space people just talk to themselves. And to move further in space, we have to learn how to talk to non-space people because they're the decision makers. And so, you know, I got to go to other UN, um, um, you know, I went to the UN Climate Change Convention. I was looking at world trade. 
Um, I was looking at emerging technologies at that time. It was kind of the blockchain was the big buzz and, and what are the roles of all these new and emerging technologies? And I think all those experiences culminated into this role at Arizona State University in space and society because I'd learned how to communicate with space people, non-space people, established actors, developing countries, um, young kids, because I also did a lot of stuff with kids. I also did outreach. I had my own podcast. So all those experiences all culminated together. And I found myself in this sweet spot of being able to co communicate with everyone in the industry. And then, and, and then I don't want to say it's good timing, but all these social movements we're having right now, it's just, it's just the right time to say social justice issues, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, all that needs to come into space as well. So I'm really blessed that all my skills and experiences have all just come to bear at this right time. And I'm so glad I'm in America uh, because it's just the perfect place to explore all these issues. You know, Chris, I'm, I'm toying with an analogy here and hear me out. Uh, folks like, you know, Timmy that can connect with people here on earth, but are thinking about space. I'm I'm toying with the idea of calling them human space elevators. Their head is in space, but their feet are firmly planted on Earth. Right. Does, does that work? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> did you think of that in, in real but, time, Charity? Um, <laughs> did that did that come to you now? Or you you were you were up all night playing with that frame, weren't you? <laughs> No, it's a great concept. I love it, and it's and it does. I, I picture that that that's exactly what we need to do is uh, is connect to the ground and and the space. So you know, you talked about um, uh, how you were received at first. There's a lot, first of all, to get into of what you just said, Tim Yevi. But uh, from the from the the first part of your answer and what the, uh, the people in Nigeria were saying when you started working there. Have you seen a change? Uh, that that was that was what uh, 10, uh, 10 years ago. Fourteen, 14 years, years ago. <laughs> so, is there more of an awareness when you when you go back, or you or you talk to people there, um, or in these other emerging and, and uh, middle space powers? Do you see that there is a more understanding? So, if you're just walking down the street, then no. But thank God for social media, because for instance, I'm very very active on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I and I post a lot of things about what I'm thinking, and I'm just so shocked at how many young people from these African countries reach out to me. And so, you know, they, there's not many role models for them on the ground that they can reach out to. And thanks to social media, they've been able to reach out to me. And I really have a lot of hope that if more and more um, activities are done for the youth around space, we're really going to see an exponential growth in the amount of young people. Because right now, you know, they don't have educational programs that are focused on space. There's no like not very many teachers that know anything about space. So the ones who actually develop an interest are brilliant because they're self-taught. You know, and they're the ones who end up finding me and then I end up mentoring them. And it's just really exciting to watch them grow. So I'm super excited for um, for the opportunity. And I think now uh, space is kind of an, an, an African Union wide agenda. So there's going to be an there's an African space policy that was adopted and there's going to be an African space agency by 2023, I believe, that's going to be in Egypt. So having a regional wide project I think is also going to bring more people to the table because then they don't have to just focus on what's going on in their country when not much might be going on. But they can tap into 
um, you know, like an Africa wide thing. And there's, I see there's not really many voices that represent that African perspective, like regionally. So I'm trying to fill the gap with respect to being that coordinator that's not, yes, I'm Nigerian, but I'm an Africanist and I want to see all of Africa develop capacity and be able to join in the global conversation. That's wonderful. Um, I'd, I'd like to move on to a, a topic near and dear to our hearts. And at Azure Scale and Space to Grow, we're all about sustainable utilization of space. We'd like to know what space sustainability means to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I in I did my PhD, my master's on the topic. It was called Towards Space Sustainability, um, Lessons Learned from Environmental Liability Regimes. And it was really interesting to see that really the way sustainability was conceptualized in the space sector is really around global security. So, you know, how can we ensure that everyone is kind of secure? And, and that's where sustainability was focused on. But I was really thinking of, you know, I went to the root of sustainability, which is like ecology. And, you know, looking at this, like systemic views of sustainability. And there, it's really, I understand it as the requirement of, you know, harmonization of public policies and social practices and their convergence towards ensuring the co-evolution of man-made systems and ecosystems. So, and, and the, the, the question in my master's thesis that I was looking at was, is the space environment worthy of environmental protection? Like, is it even something that we can conceive of as an environment? And I, and I think the thing is, even if we take an anthropocentric perspective towards it and a very selfish one, um, so long as man operates in anywhere then that that is part of man's environment and so i think we should definitely be taking Mm. this environmental awareness wherever we go i don't think so we we say space is far away and and no one is there but but people are operating there and more and more people will be operating there and the lessons that we've learned from what's happened on earth when we didn't think sustainably and we didn't think of environments you know what's the point of continuing that. And I mean, the oceans is a perfect example where people thought it was hostile and hazardous and huge. And now everyone is talking about plastics, like plastic pollution is just a huge thing in the oceans. And it's something that people would have thought the oceans were so vast. So I think that that's how it's going to be about space. We're going to have a greater awareness as there's more activities that there's going to be increased risk of environmental degradation and you know even though people think there's no victim right now you know we know that in the future things may change and we don't know how that's going to evolve so we should just think sustainably from the beginning so timmy Abby, you joked that i i was in your asu staff meeting when i asked the first question with, with that answer i think you've been in some of our astro scale meetings <laughs> because yeah, that is yeah. exactly what we talk about i i mean all the time about this issue of the orbital environment just being another uh, ecosystem that we need to protect. It's another natural resource that we are wholly reliant on. And if we- Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, if we let it degrade, it, it's it's going to have the same um, significant impact that the degradation of the oceans or the atmosphere or, you know, any, any terrestrial based environmental problem. That's, that's, that's the problem in orbit as well. So, couldn't agree more. So, what what do you see now? I mean, it, the we we talked about the you talked about all the, the developing of the uh, emerging uh, space economies joining the the space uh, community, uh, and there's also this just proliferation of satellites in low Earth orbit, 
government and commercial and university. Um, how are we? Uh, are, are the are the benefits of all of this growth in utilization of space? Uh, how do we maintain it? How do we uh, use it? And how do we make sure it remains sustainable? Uh, and uh, how do we assure that we have uh, long-term utilization uh, of space um, with all of this that's happening? And, yes. and making sure that there's an advantage to society at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So one of the, I mean, I just gave a talk yesterday to the Club of Rome. And, you know, one of the things that I was was exploring here was really what instruments do we need? And of course, I'm a lawyer. So the first one that I think of is the legal mechanisms. And so I gave this talk looking at environmental liability regimes for ultra hazardous activities on Earth. So for instance, oil, maritime transportation of oil and nuclear power generation and try to, you know, say, okay, if, if we imagine, you know, how those liability regimes in those fields would apply in the space context. And it was just really fascinating to just, you know, think about that because there you have civil liability instead of in the space context, we just have state liability. So it's just the governments. But what would it mean if, if there was liability kind of for all actors? But it was super interesting because even though it was a non-space audience, they, you know, some of the things was like, why are you just focusing on liability, which is after the damage has been done? So then I was, my conclusion was really, you need to think at all stages. Yet one, you have to think of prevention and the precautionary principle and how do we stop, you know, degradation of the space environment before it even happens. Then the next phase, you need to think, well, during activities, how do we ensure that we know what's going on and we can maintain and we can even predict when something could happen so we could warn. And then as a last stop, we think about liability. So after you know, then you can now say, okay, we hold people accountable because we've had three stages where they could have made changes and they did not. And now we can hold them liable. But I think you have to think of in all those phases. And so, you know, so using legal instruments, it's one, how do we make preventative stuff binding? So looking at guidelines and all that kind of stuff and thinking, should they be more binding? Then in the middle phase, in operations phase, how do we think about the fact, do we need central institutions that would, you know, be the, not the police, but have a have an overview of what's going on in space and and warn people about what's going on but not just i know the us have that capability but international capability and then thirdly have the liability regimes which also could be international so that we could do things like have funds you know pool funds for compensation for environmental damage and things like that so that's what i've been thinking about over the over the last few days just thinking about what an environmental you know, legal framework would look like. You talked about liability, and that's such a big issue today and in in the future. And these new space activities that no one country has really regulated yet and don't really understand how to regulate. Can you talk about what are the biggest legal questions out there, say, in the next 10 years that need to be resolved in order to allow these space activities to thrive and to have a sustainable space future? Mm. So. I'm not an expert on all of the laws, but international space law is like where I have the most experience. And Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty says that international law applies in space. 
But I think no one has really gone into what does that mean? Because if we understand that international law applies in space, then we no longer need to think that space is the wild, wild west, because that means that there are laws that apply. But figuring out which laws, international laws or which laws on earth will apply in the space context is what I think the challenge is and what I think we're going to need to work at over the coming years. And a few people have been working on this. So for instance, Maria Rimbassan is looking at antitrust and competition law and how that would apply, you know, how that would extend to space because we're now having more and more companies. And so, you know, it's not just state-based law that we have to think about, but how do we regulate these different companies in space? And so how does antitrust law apply? Um, I've been thinking along with Chris Van Each about environmental law and like what principles already apply. So for me, what I think is going to be really interesting in the next 10 years from a legal perspective is having non-space people looking at the, the area of law that they work on and wondering how it applies to space. Because, and the, the most exciting thing and why I think it's really relevant is that space is the youngest area of international law. It's just 60 years old. Other laws like the law of the sea, you know, all these other laws are like a billion years old. And so it's, it could be a really exciting time for non-space lawyers to just really look at their area of law and say, how does the apply in space? And all of it is relevant, right? Trade is going to be increasingly important. Trade and investment law, um, you know, intellectual property law, um, even, even constitutional and administrative lawyers, like all of that is going to be relevant. And I think we're going to see more and more of that over the coming years. Yeah, it is. As you're talking, I, it's, uh, various thoughts come through, um, you know, how having a, a centralized authority, I think, obviously, is going to be very tough. Uh, you know the um, the uh, the suspicion or the concern about having centralized, you know, global authority uh, taking away a state actor um, independence is hard. And then, but then the other side of that is, how do you avoid a a race to the bottom in terms of sustainability side? So one country puts in strict regulations on launch licenses for sustainable space operations but then okay I'll go launch from somewhere else that doesn't have those strict those strict laws and that's and that happens of course now with environmental regulation um how do we get beyond that I and mean, this is an extension to that question but um I mean is is it is it realistic to to think about a um a global uh, governing Governing is too strong of a word. A global body that has some kind of oversight over this? So this is the challenge because as an international lawyer, as an international person, the thing, the instinct is to say we need an international organization. When we look at, you know, like I said, I studied maritime transportation of oil and I also studied nuclear power. And when I look at the legal regimes that were established under those, you know, regimes, those were technical bodies that oversee that whole industry globally. And like COPUS, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, is a political forum. And so it doesn't really get to making technical standards very well and things like that. And so, so I don't know what to say about this because half of me feels that what's happening right now is basically we're having coalitions of actors going up, right? So like with the Artemis Accords that the US is leading, that's nine countries that are like, we're going to space and we're going to have these governance rules that are going to, um, you know, cover our activities. 
Now we're having the Russians and the Chinese building their own space station, so they're going to have their own governance regimes. And what we call this is polycentric governance. So governance at different scales, you know, with different groupings of actors. And then, then it comes a time, how many individual, you know, groupings of actors and legal regimes can you have before they clash? Or be, and, and then does that now call for a central institution that at least can give some guidance as to what all those other regimes should cover? Right now, they would say the Outer Space Treaty does that. The Outer Space Treaty is the constitution of space. And like the Artemis Accords basically, um, says that it follows the Outer Space Treaty and then adds to it. And so, yes, the Outer Space Treaty has worked so far, but it has no technical standards. It has no meat. It has no implement, implementing features to it. And so, you know, but no one seems to be in the mood for like developing, say, protocols. Um, but when you look at other regimes, like for instance, I also studied the climate change regime. And when the Paris Agreement on climate change of 2015 came out, you know, what they figured out was unlike the Kyoto Protocol, which actually had set limits of the greenhouse gas emissions that each country could do, you know, they found that we need something that is ambition based, whereby people are supported in the goals. And then the only legally binding thing there is actually reporting. So, Tons of people signed up for that regime. And so what you find there is that the rules were relaxed in that they didn't have goals that they had to meet. They had to choose their own goals, but you want to support them to increase their ambition over time. And then you want a reporting structure so that they can be held accountable through naming and shaming if they don't increase their ambition. That seemed like a really, really good idea at the time. And when I think of an environment whereby people don't want legally binding rules, then I say, okay, how do we think of an ambition-based thing whereby if you're not increasing your ambition, you're going to look like the bad guy, even though there's no laws? That might be an interesting thing to think about. Or something like a race to the top. like Right. An exactly. international geophysical is. year for space sustainability. Who will do the best job? Give us right. 10 years. It's, go. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, though, what we've seen in the climate change regime is that people haven't been increasing their ambition um, fast enough. And what we then saw was that state-based, because the obligation is just for the state, and when the U.S. said that they were going to pull out of the Paris Agreement, we now saw that that's a weak point if there's only one big actor that is responsible for everything. So really getting every faction to believe that this is part of their mandate is going to be important. So it's not just the state, it's the suppliers, it's the designers, it's it's everyone should like build this in to what they're doing right from the start. Yeah, it's an incentives and and so you know the incentives have to be you know driven from state uh regulatory regimes, but also I mean, with climate we see also the incentives the economic incentives are growing as well. Companies are seeing that there is an economic benefit to building green tech. Uh, and so it doesn't have, you know, before it was just seen as costly. And if it was, if it was imposed, it was imposed and it was, and it was a costly imposition. But I think there's a bit of a shift towards seeing that, okay, there's actually an economic benefit and the, and the consumer wants that. The consumer wants to purchase that green tech. And so I think when you shift to the space too, looking at, um, you know, a consumer wanting to, uh, to, to work with companies that are, that are going to be sustainable and 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 be environmentally conscious. I think that's what we're going to have to get to. It's hard. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Um. So 
it, it dawns on me, like, I'm sure you have had amazing experiences and people that you've met that have influenced you in the area of space law and connecting mm. space and society. Tell us who those people are, who has been influential to you. So hands down in the space law side, like in terms of people who are more experienced than me, it's one person, my first boss, the guy who got me into space. And he's really yes. quiet. So I don't really, you know, I I, I don't okay. want to, you know, talk too much about him. But he was my first boss at the Nigerian Space Agency. And he went, he later went on to be chair of the legal subcommittee of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space at the UN, representing Africa. And, you know, he was like a very quiet role model, you know, just quietly giving ideas and things like that. And I just watched him and just saw how he operated. And that was my role model. And he's really my main role model in terms of experienced people. And then my other role models are young people. Like I'm, it's so, you know, I'm always young people because you like one of them that I'm working with right now, Chris Van Each. All I have to do is just say an idea. And before I know it, he's already got cases. He already like can build on the idea. <laughs> and so I'm really shocked when people undervalue young people because I'm like, they have the energy. They have the, they, they can connect the dots and things like that. So my mentees are really, you know, my inspiration. And then from the perspective of this idea of space and society, there's not really many people who are bridging that divide. So my role model there is actually from science and society. And here we have Dr. Alondra Nelson, who is actually the director for science and society at the White House, at the Office for Science and Technology Policy. And she works at that interface of basically race and society and science and injustice and, and, and all that. So, and she's also a black woman. And so she's really my role model in figuring out what does this whole space and society mean? And how does, and how is central to that? speaking up for the underrepresented and the minority voices because i think all the you know big big people and important people they can't get to that you know they can't get to that and they're not the right faces to talk about space and society in this context that we have today you need someone who can be happy to communicate with like five-year-olds like black girls magazine they interviewed me and they're like 11 to 14 year old girls that interviewed me about space governance. Just last week for Yuri's Night, I interviewed three 12-year-olds. And and at the same time, I'm having this podcast with a company today. And yesterday, I talked to the Club of Rome. You have to be multifaceted and not feel like any audience is too small or not important because everyone is important in, in this, our collective space future that we're dreaming of. That's so cool. And I know... Uh... Charity and I uh, both have young children, and mine at least actually sometimes listen to this podcast. So what? I'll make sure they listen to wow. yours and, and others. To me, yeah, you, you don't get yours to do it, Charity. No, I had I had to listen to you. It, it does it, It's never the whole thing. <laughs> oh no, I mean, I mean yeah, when it drops. I mean, not right now. When when it drops out, <laughs> even then. <laughs> um, well, it's been it's been such a cool conversation, Timmy. Abby. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we have a couple of uh, closing questions that we just want to uh, we like to end with, and and one of those is on uh, space, the future of space. So we talked a little bit about where you see things in ten years, but can you give us uh, three predictions about what the space ecosystem 
will look like in 2035. So what's it going to look like in orbit uh, and beyond? And, and how is that going to be impacting uh, on the Earth? What are some um, thoughts you have on that? Okay, my three predictions. I hate making predictions because basically, right, I, you know, especially because I'm in a future school and I have to tell people, I can't predict the future, but I double down when I see that it's already here. And so it's basically what I see that is already here is we are in what I'm calling the space 5.0 era, where the three trends are really resisting the structures of coloniality, operationalizing equity, and bringing into, you know, filling the void, the legal void that we have in space. So I think the space 5.0 era is going to come into being. I think I'm really looking at Africa as the next hot spot. And really, I'm so optimistic because Africa is the youngest, most useful population by that 2030 that you're talking about. And, you know, from what I am seeing with respect to what's going on, if you guys are on Clubhouse, which is like the newest social media app, there's like a group. There's groups on space industry in Africa, space industry in the Middle East, and there's just tons and tons of people every week that come to those groups to talk I, about I'm what's not that going cool. on. <laughs> I'm not that I cool. Felt, I, felt, I felt so cool when I did my first talk on Clubhouse, <laughs> but it's great. Um, and, and then thirdly, the workforce of the future are going to be transdisciplinary. No longer can we operate in silos if we're really going to answer the big questions in space. And so the skill set that people need to work on, and I think this is what the International Space University do, this is what my school does, is really getting scientists and engineers who are holistic in their, out in their thinking and also socially conscious. So I think those are my three predictions for the next 10 years. I like it. I like it. Um... So we're not going to ask you another kind of common question we like to ask our guests because uh, you told us ahead of time that you, you're not really a, like a sci-fi movie buff, but I would love to know what movie should be developed. It's, it, it would be a movie based on space issues that you think should be shown on the big screen. And what does that look like? Well, you know, the funny thing is, I'm not a space buff, but I did enjoy The Martian. And I tell you why oh. I like the I tell you why I like The Martian. Two things about The Martian. One, they had he had a discussion about space law because when he came out of his habitat, he was like, "What is the legal regime? Am I a space pirate? Is it maritime law that applies?" So that was that was like That's my fair. first time of seeing a movie where they talked about space law. And then the second thing is, I don't know if you guys know Chris Hadfield, who's a Canadian astronaut. He has a book called The Astronaut's Guide to Life. And his main mantra in that book is you've got to sweat the small stuff. Um, and which is like counterintuitive, obviously, because all the feedback we get is don't sweat the small stuff, you know, focus on the big picture. But in space, you've got to focus on the small stuff. Otherwise, you won't get home. And in The Martian, I think Mark Watney was like, I just need to fix one problem at a time and I'm going to make it home. So really, you know, what mm. I really got from that was like, with re like, you sweat the small stuff to get home, you face, but you face one problem at a time. So you're not overwhelmed by all the small stuff so that you can't actually get anything done. And so I really think that's a great movie to watch. And I watched that movie at a, at a really pivotal time in my life and really took those, those words to heart that like, yeah, you've got to sweat the small stuff, but just take it one at a time. <laughs> That's my every day. Yeah, keep, yeah. The, keep the big picture in mind, but take care of all the little stuff, right? <laughs> step by step by step. 
No, love that movie. And yeah, Chris Hadfield. I mean, we have, yeah. I guess, two Canadians on this podcast because you're, you're, you have a Canadian connection, right, Timmy Abby? I'm Canadian. Um, so I'm, I'm British by birth, Nigerian by origin, and Canadian by choice. <laughs> love it. How would you describe yourself, Charity? I, I am binational. Canadian by um, birth. Yeah, Canadian by birth and uh, American by choice <laughs> as well. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm boring. I'm just American, but you know, I guess the Japan thing, I've been over <laughs> here for a while, so I'm never going to be Japanese, but, um, <laughs> uh, to me, it'd be such a cool conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, good luck. And we look forward to following you on all of your social, uh, you said LinkedIn and Twitter, I know you're on and, and you're doing a lot of stuff for outreach and we'll continue to follow you and get our kids to follow you too. Thank you. And thank you for all the work you're doing. We really appreciate someone thinking practically about sustainability. Thanks so much, Tim Yevich.